So my name is Sarah Vanda, and I serve as the director of the Cornell Oaks for Science. And today I want to welcome you to our inaugural live. Here at the Alliance for Science, we hope everyone, wherever you may be in the world, is safe and healthy in these times of challenge and uncertainty. Today, we're launching our newest initiative, Alliance for Science Live, a regular webinar series that will bring together voices from around the globe to engage in discussions around food, agriculture, and science. Today, we'll hear directly from three of our African correspondents about their reporting around the ground in Africa. Later this week, we'll hear about the rise of the anti-science movement in Brazil, and the conversations continue next week and beyond. Alliance for Science Live allows us to connect as a global community, discuss tough issues, hear diverse sessions, moderated by our very own managing editor, Joan Conroe. Enjoy. Over to you, Joan. Thank you, Sarah. It's good to see you and everybody here. Greetings, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. The Alliance for Science hires regional correspondents to ensure that our reporting about Africa comes to you straight from the source. So today we've got three of those correspondents um, here from joining us from Nigeria, Kenya, and Ghana to tell us what's happening there during this global pandemic. So let me introduce you to our correspondents and at this time we'll do a little sound check with them as they say hi. So first we've got Nakechi Isaac, who's in Nigeria. Good, um, hello, Nakechi. Hello, Joanne. Good to good see you. Good to see you too. You're coming through loud. <laughs> We've also got um, Bernardo Maimon in Nairobi, Kenya. Hello, Joanne. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank good. you. And we've got Joseph Apoku Gakpo um, reporting to us from Ghana. Morning, Hi there. Everybody. Good day. I hope you can hear me loud and clear. Yes, good. We're all, seems like we're all loud and clear. Great. Yeah. All right, so let's start with Nakechi. And why don't you give us just a little update on what's happening in Nigeria right now in regard to COVID? Are you still under lockdown? Or are your borders closed? What's the status of things now? So um, with the coronavirus, um, pandemic that we are trying to battle. When we had the first, um, first uh, case that was recorded, uh, the federal government issued a lockdown. Uh, the first one was a four weeks lockdown um, to allow people, the government to have a firm grasp of uh, the situation. So um, we had the schools shut. We had the shops shut, the borders were closed, commercial flights were stopped uh, for the four weeks. And afterwards, we had another four weeks um, to help government stop the spread of the, the rapid spread of the virus. But uh, with things looking up, we had uh, from April to Last night, we've had from, we've moved from one case in um, the beginning of the year, which was February, till now we have over 16,000. Mm -hmm. So 
But now things are beginning to look up because we are beginning to um, have a gradual ease of the lockdown. Now, um, the Presidential Task Force on COVID-19 has issued some directives that will now allow worship centers to open. Mm -hmm. They allow civil servants uh, who are from grade 14 upwards can go to work, but the junior students have to stay out till um, they get further directive. Then we also have the gradual ease of the lockdown in the markets. Prior to now, we had markets under lockdown. We only make use of the corner shops around the neighborhoods. But now, beginning to, with government, feeling they are now having a grasp of the situation. They have also opened up the markets. Uh, now, uh, we have, even though it's not every day, we have two days of the week. They go to markets on Mondays, on Wednesdays, and on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. The people uh, allowed to trade now are the people who sell essential things like foodstuff. Uh, and then the market opens from 10 a.m. till around 4 p.m. Then now financial institutions, which we are sure that before has also been opened. Now you can go to bank, although they are running before now, it was not full scale, but now they have started running the night to two. So things are getting back to normal here in Nigeria. Uh, that's basically the summary of what's going on right now in Nigeria. Okay, it's good to hear that things are easing up a little bit there. I'm sure everybody's happy to have things turn a little bit more to normal. Um, Mimi, how about you? Tell us a little bit about what's the situation there in, in Nairobi and the rest of Kenya in terms of are you still under lockdown? Are things moving? Is there testing? What's, what's going on there? Um, Mimi, you might want to unmute yourself. Okay. Great. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Yes, uh, just uh, similar as uh, in Keji, we had a uh, lockdown uh, since uh, the first case was uh, reported. Um, the first case in Kenya was reported in mid-March and immediately the government uh, closed schools, hospital, um, uh, schools, um, uh, markets, uh, some markets, and also uh, there was um, a closure of worship centers uh, and so forth. So since the first, um, encounter and the government took that uh, initiative of uh, closing uh, such uh, essential services, um, Kenyans um, uh, tried to, uh, to grapple with the new directives. Um, uh, most people who are, have been affected were uh, people who are in informal settlements, for example, slums, um, you know, uh, maintaining social distance um, um, was very difficult. It was a huge task for them. But um, as things continued, people started uh, taking their, their own initiatives to combat the virus. Uh, we saw uh, several innovations uh, of Kenyans. For example, a nine-year-old uh, innovated uh, hand-washing uh, sanitizer, um, hand-washing machine, um, which um, the Kenyan government, um, through the president, recognized that innovation. So we have seen communities' uh, resilience and um, uh, 
using indigenous knowledge basically to fight the virus. Um, since the lockdown, uh, markets were affected uh, really, especially for the farmers uh, trying to transport their various produ produce from their markets. I spoke to one farmer who turned to social media to sell his produce, um, uh, who sells from the uh, eastern part of, of Kenya. Uh, so with the COVID-19 um, and the cultural change, especially uh, how people operate, for example, issues to do with the barriers, um, the Kenyan government and a youth task uh, to uh, stop people from attending the barriers in huge numbers because uh, um, barriers in Kenya are seen as a pass, uh, rite of passage. So uh, to tell people that uh, only 15 people should attend the barriers was a huge uh, task for, for, for people to contain that. But uh, with time, we saw um, an understanding of the guidelines. And um, now people are taking uh, um, uh, this directive seriously. Although there were some incidences, for example, in Western Kenya, where uh, a popular musician died, and uh, when he was being buried, uh, so many people wanted to storm the family um, um, burial of their kin. And uh, that one escalated a lot of uh, chaos in the region. Um, uh, generally, um, there has been a lot of changes here and there in terms of um, access to uh, markets. Um, one thing that uh, changed was um, the lockdown was eased uh, um, from a 10 hour curfew to seven hours in the last uh, two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And this has seen uh, the rise of various businesses uh, opening up. Oh, good. So it sounds like the economy is coming back a little bit more then, too. Great. Yeah, sure. Um, so, Joseph, tell us what's the latest there in Ghana. Uh, how, are you, how are you doing in regards to, are you still under lockdown, or what's the situation there? Um, Joseph, you need to unmute. Okay, there you go. There you so, go. Um, Ghana recorded its first case in early March, um, as at last night when the president addressed the nation to update everybody. The indication is that more than 11,000 cases have been recorded now. Um, about 54 deaths have been recorded for a population of about 30 million people. Um, there's a lot of aggressive testing that's happening. Uh, more than 150,000 to 160,000 plus tests have been done. Um, a number of us have all subjected ourselves to the testing and all, just to be sure that um, we are COVID-free or otherwise. Uh, once in a while, the results delay in coming and all, um, and mainly that has been the general concern. Um, there was a lockdown period in the regional capital, Accra, and surrounding areas, as well as the second biggest city, Kumasi, and surrounding areas, for a period of three weeks uh, back in April. Um, after that, things have not exactly returned to normal. Um, schools remain closed for quite a while until today. Then schools resume for final year university students to return to class sometime next week. Final year senior high school students will be returning. And then there is a limited reopening of church services and all. Um, um, the conversation has been huge 
over the weekend as well, we got the disclosure that the health minister here in Ghana, Kwikwajiman Menu, had tested positive for the virus and was recovering in a health facility here in Accra. Um, a local mayor who was in charge of more like the third biggest city in Ghana, the second Takradi area, actually died late last week. And the indication is that he died as a result of COVID-19. And so um, the, 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 um, there's been bits and pieces of uh, very terrible news with regards to the virus, but generally, um, there's more like a strong eagerness to get the economy reopened going forward. And so that is being pursued aggressively with people being encouraged to social distance and to clean up their hands, uh, even as um, schools reopen and churches reopen and all. I think that desire to get the economy going seems like it's a, it's a worldwide push now. So tell us a little bit about how are people feeling about the virus there? Are, are they frightened or are they worried? And what kind of conspiracy theories have you heard around the virus in Ghana? And so mainly at the start of the conversation sometime in March before we recorded our cases and all, and even throughout the period that there was the lockdown over the three-week duration in some parts of the nation, um, then you got the sense people really were scared of it and were apprehensive. Um, but then as time progressed, um, people are really seeing it as virtually normal. Uh, there's been the directive that people should wear their masks. A lot of it is not happening when you step out there on the street. Um, uh, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories. In fact, uh, a gentleman was arrested and he's been put before court for circulating on social media that COVID-19 doesn't exist and that it's uh, something that was thrown out there by the executive of government just to frighten people. And that, um, in, in fact, the gentleman in the video was encouraging people to disregard the directive the president had given in terms of banning public gatherings and all. The video went out on social media for quite a while, but then eventually he was apprehended by the security agencies and he's been put before court. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks may have seen that there is a video of a man of God which uh, went viral in several parts of Africa, uh, linking COVID-19 to the 5G technology. And this is a man of God who is actually based in South Africa, he's Nigerian, but he has very huge following in several parts of Ghana. And so when he put out uh, what was actually a PowerPoint presentation, uh, essentially making the point that COVID-19 um, is part of efforts to promote technologies like 5G, it went viral not only on Facebook, not only on, um, on, 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 on WhatsApp, but then in other places. And what it has resulted in has been a situation of uh, media houses, for example, stepping up to the plates and trying to help counter their misinformation and conspiracy theories. So the organization that I work with, for example, Join News, uh, which runs a major TV station, a radio station, and a major online platform, has rolled out a project in that countering misinformation on COVID-19. And so we isolate some of the uh, statements of misinformation you know, put it out there on TV and on social media and get the experts to counter it and explain that as it's being put out, that's not exactly what it is. And so it's, it's the, the whole conspiracy theories and all have generated 
some pushback from the media as well, trying to set the record straight. And so uh, those have been some of the conversations, uh, claims, for example, that um, there's a way of testing for COVID-19, which involves holding your breath for a period of five seconds. And if you're able to do that, then it means you are COVID-19 free, has also been circulating out there, or which um, the scientific community and some media houses have been making the efforts to counter so that people are not missing out. Well, it's great to hear that there is this active effort to counter that kind of misinformation. So that's good. Nikechi, what about you? What are some of the conspiracy theories that you've seen around the virus there in, in Nigeria? So um, there are a lot going around when it comes to conspiracy theories, but the major one is basically that it's um, put out there, I make reference to the man of God that Joseph just mentioned. Uh, he, he was talking about that um, it's linked to 5G technology, which is um, a ploy man-made to get people to take vaccines, which is inevitably going to lead to uh, the, um, the enchantment of the new world order, which is going to make uh, uh, which is going to usher in the Armageddon, mm. the end of So um, he went on in the video to ask people uh, not to be wary of the vaccine. It's just, it's most of the conspiracy theories going on in Nigeria is centered around the new world order and uh, maybe the linking of 5G, the 5G technology, which uh, we in Nigeria, we've not rolled out the 5G technology yet. So that's the gap that's in that claim. Because we know we ran a test. There was a trial of the 5G technology. It was test run in Nigeria. And they are now trying to put up a report as to what the project was like. Now, there is also um, a, uh, another video that was circulated in WhatsApp where we had a cleric in the north telling people that there is nothing like coronavirus, that it is calm by the government, so they should just don't, not worry. He was telling the congrats, actually. It's like um, in, a social, in a religious gathering. He was talking and he was making reference that coronavirus is not real. Now, after that video, which misinformed the people, Like Nikechi's having a little signal there. That we saw another video on online. Just can you hear me? Yes, now we can hear you again. Okay. Now after that video went viral, um, shortly after that there was a spike in the number of cases recorded in that part of the country. Now now the government had to draft in more health personnel to help contain the situation. So uh, in terms of um, you know, conspiracy theories, we have quite a number of them. There is also this conspiracy, this theory that um, by another um, guy that claimed to have worked 
with a, a telecom company who also linked his conspiracy theory to the 5G technology. Most of them circle around the 5G. But and he claimed that it's also a grand plan to also usher in the uh, new world order. But all this will also measures when uh, the government comes out to tell people to disregard that, you know, that it's more of uh, misleading the public in terms of taking precautionary measures uh, when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, it's good to hear too that your government's being active and in correcting that misinformation, letting people know that they, don't, they shouldn't be listening to that. So Mamie, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's move to Kenya and see, hear a little report on what's happening with the availability of food in Kenya in the middle of the pandemic. Well, um, uh, food security is still um, a major issue that the government uh, guidelines uh, are really supporting uh, towards boosting food production. Um, uh, this week, we saw government um, read the budget, and uh, out of that budget, which was about a 2.7 trillion budget, 58, um, 53 uh, billion was dedicated to agriculture. And this one, if you compare it with the 2019-2020 budget uh, last year, which was red, um, it was uh, allocated uh, 58 a billion. So there is a big uh, discrepancy and the government uh, sources say that uh, the argument is that the government has collected uh, less revenue because of the COVID. So um, in response, uh, Ministry of Agriculture has taken uh, care of that and ensuring that the budget reaches the common uh, farmer in the villages. Uh, one issue that they have done was to introduce e-voucher whereby 200 thousand farmers will benefit from e-vulture. So e-vulture means that the farmers will be able to uh, receive uh, cash uh, donations from the government um, so that they can go ahead and buy the inputs. Uh, secondly, the inputs has also been subsidized, almost disrogating uh, 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 a seed cost. So in the near future, we are likely to see uh, less cost of seed uh, which is um, a major issue. Remember that uh, in Kenya, we've been affected mostly with floods, killing so many farmers, as well as wiping uh, some farms. Uh, secondly, there, is, there was an issue of locust, uh, which invaded farms. I talked to one farmer in uh, in eastern part of Kenya, whose farm, uh, farming watermelon, was wiped out by uh, a loc desert locust. So he was surprised that uh, the, locust, uh, the locust could uh, uh, feed on his farm uh, completely and uh, the, the seed, the, the watermelon had not um, uh, reached uh, harvestage. So it was a complete loss. Another farmer I spoke to talked about his livestock being affected by the desert locust. Um, uh, you know, they, there was a huge reduction of um, milk. Mm -hmm. and, and also he lost some cattle as well uh, because of um, the locust feeding on vegetation and uh, you know how does use um, this vegetation to feed on their cattle. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, so you, it's been such bad timing to have the COVID coming at the same time, as you mentioned, with the floods and the locusts. So they've kind of created this perfect storm of food shortages. So Kenya's getting ready to import some maize to help um, supplement the food supply there. Are there any other efforts that are underway to try to bring in additional food or will that maize import probably take care of the problem? Well, uh, we, the, the government, uh, through the Ministry of, of uh, Finance, allowed uh, importation of 4 million uh, bags, uh, 2 million of uh, uh, consumable maize, and 2 million bags of uh, yellow maize, which was supposed to be uh, to, to make um, livestock feeds. Mm -hmm. um, the consignment is underway, and sources say that uh, the maize will be arrived in the country anytime from this mid-June. Uh, so the government, apart from importing, uh, through the county government, they established um, a food security war room whereby they are collecting data, real-time data from various county sources so that they can know which counties is producing which commodity. And then after knowing that information, then they can share among various counties. Uh, secondly, um, the Minister of Agriculture has issued several guidelines with uh, partners such as uh, FAO to ensure that uh, farmers use kitchen garden so that they can grow uh, small uh, crops um, to, to, the, to feed their families. Mm -hmm. Good, that sounds like a good approach. Hey Joseph, let's, let's hear from you. What's, what's happening with the food supply there in Ghana in the midst of this pandemic? Um, Anil? Okay, there you go. So um, j just as we've seen in Nigeria and um, Kenya, um, the impact has been quite huge. So for example, during the period when uh, there was the lockdown, then it was a very big issue because um, there was a lot of panic buying even after government announced plans for the lockdown. And market surveys show that food prices skyrocketed somewhere between 30 and 50% on the average. Mm -hmm. Some major staples, for example, skyrocketed up to 100% in terms of um, how much they were going for. And oh during the period of lockdown, yes, although uh, we had a situation where um, markets were exempt and food stores were open, um, the prices had gone up to the extent that people were finding it you know, uh, quite difficult buying some of those produce and all. Um, not just that, uh, there's also the potential impact going into the future because, um, for example, when you look at the seed industry specifically, um, I've been engaging the folks that run the sector and we all know that th there's a lot of push to get farmers to adopt more of improved seeds in terms mm -hmm. of what they plant on the fields because the yields are a lot higher and there are complaints about how the nation got shut down sometime in March just ahead of the planting season when importation was being done for improved seeds you know and so then um, they couldn't come in um, commercial flights are not getting in and so those who want to bring in improved seeds we happen to import quite a large chunk of the, that um, we happen to um, 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 have a situation where now they need to come in on cargo flights from the National Seed Trade Association that has also resulted in prices going up somewhere between 20 and 30 percent 
some have not been able to bring in the improved seeds. The local companies that work on improved seeds, for example, they are not getting the needed labor to get it done uh, because of lockdown restrictions. That also posing some impact. And then farmers are being virtually forced to go back to um, their own seeds to replant instead of going in for the improved seeds, which obviously re will reduce um, um, uh, uh, productivity. Uh, Ghana averagely spends about $100 million every month importing various agricultural produce, again, because of the lockdown. That is not happening. And we've seen a situation where there is huge impact on a lot of our major cash crops that we export. So, for example, cashew, cocoa is being negatively hit. Um, I did the journey over like um, um, a six, seven hour duration to a place called Sampa, which is in the uh, Bono region in Ghana, where they grow a lot of cashew for export. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a situation where there isn't a lot of cashew processing happening. A lot of it is mainly for export, but because of lockdown, because of COVID-19, the processing facilities are closing down in Asia and elsewhere. And so there is a glut on the market. And when you convert it into dollar terms, a hundred bar kilogram of cashew, that could ordinarily go for uh, anywhere around um, $170 is being sold at half the price by farmers because they need to get them out of their store. So this is hitting them badly and their incomes are being negatively impacted. Um, the cocoa board, which manages the cocoa sector, is also worried that they would have to cut down on how much they buy cocoa from farmers, also as a result of the glut, because a lot of the processing plants are closed internationally and are not processing. Raising questions about the need for Ghana to ensure that for a lot of our cash crops, we put in the necessary measures to process them locally rather than selling them without any form of processing. And so uh, those have been the very negative impacts. The rains have started now. Uh, we look forward to see how the maneuvering will be done so that farmers are still able to get access to improved seeds to actually plant. And, 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 and so that particularly going into later in the year, food security is not negatively hit which government says they are putting in the necessary measures to bring under control. Mm -hmm. So you've got this combined problem of food security shortages because just getting food to the people who need it and an inability to import food. The same time farmers are losing money because their cash crops can't get out. Are we also, are people in the West and other countries going to see higher prices for things like chocolate and cashew because of this, this, breakdown in the production line? So the sad part uh, is that chances are that for those who do a lot of the consumption of these um, cocoa products and cashew products, we'll rather see uh, the benefits of it in terms of benefiting from fairly low prices of some of these produce. Um, mm -hmm. That's if the processing industry passes it on to them because mm -hmm. the problem is that um, on the international markets, the prices of these commodities are falling. And so um, the processing companies are buying them at a much lower rate than they would buy, which is why the farmer is being hit negatively. And um, so we, we end up creating a system where if the processing companies in the Netherlands, in America, in Germany, would want to pass on the benefit of buying the raw materials, to their consumers, then their consumers would end up buying at a lower price or then the processing companies, eventually when they reopen, will make windfall profits because they are buying 
the very primary commodity at very low prices. Uh, mm -hmm. So that then um, now will probably be the time for all the companies that are involved in um, activities to ensure fair trade, you know, will probably have to step in mm -hmm. and ensure that even as the produce are sold on the uh, international markets, you know, more benefits of it are piped down to the farmers right here locally. Uh, but, 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 but the likely impact again on consumers in the West going forward of produce like cocoa and cashew is that when the farmers are unable to make good money this year, next year they will not invest in some of those produce. Mm -hmm. And what that will mean is that going into next year, then a lot less of those commodities will be available on the international market. And what that will mean is that the prices of them will skyrocket and those consuming some of these produce in the West would have to pay higher prices for it. And so um, we may be feeling the impact of it in terms of farmers on this side of the Atlantic Ocean today, but tomorrow those in the West would be faced with the negative impact and the, reali the reality of it that um, these restrictions and COVID-19 impact uh, is actually real to a very large extent that we all need to look out for going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think this whole pandemic really raises that issue of how interconnected our food supply is and that this is not something that's just going to be resolved in a month or two. It's going to have very far-reaching impacts with some big winners and some big losers as this process goes along. You know, Nikechi, let's talk a little bit about um, Nigeria. It's, you know, it's a huge, got a huge population. How, how are you doing in terms of feeding um, the people, or not you personally, but how is Nigeria doing in terms of feeding people and um, keeping the food supply going during this pandemic? So, uh, right now, when the federal government announced um, the lockdown, um, he also rolled out some measures that will help in making sure we still have food, especially for the underprivileged in the society. Now, uh, when the government um, announced the lockdown, uh, during, in his speech, he also gave instructions for the, the National Grain Research Institute to, uh, to give out about 70,000 grains to farmers and then that there was also um, another um, directive from the president for 60,000 grains to be released to farmers too. Then um, apart from giving out palliatives by the federal government, which um, the underprivileged people were uh, giving conditional cash transfer to make sure they are able to at least get the basic needs during the lockdown period, which was um, under $100. Mm -hmm. for each month. Mm -hmm. The federal government directed for the distribution of about 15,000 um, metric tons of grains that uh, were confiscated sometime in, um, by the Nigerian customs. Okay, the federal government also gave directive for um, the morat moratorium on, for three months for um, the, there, there is a scheme that's going on. We have the one that's called the trader money. We have the one called the market money, and then we have the farmer money. So it's in a bid to uh, make sure that the farmers um, have assets 
money and grain. Mm -hmm. Then we also have the state governments taking also initiative of uh, giving out palliatives to uh, the underprivileged. Each state government has its own project, also meant, targeted at uh, getting across to the un underprivileged, those who um, the lockdown is going to bite more. Now, uh, apart from that, we also have, um, you know, um, we are also um, planting um, some of the uh, grains that um, we are giving out by the, uh, the Minister of Science and Technology also um, told NABDA to also make improved seeds available to farmers in Nigeria. So um, those are some of the um, initiatives by the government to make sure farmers uh, have, have something to plant to get back uh, and make sure we have food for the people. Even though, um, I was talking to a farmer recently and she was saying that we are going to have food shortages despite all this effort by the federal government. We, because most of, apart from what the federal government is trying to do, our farming, which is basically um, low key, but it's not mechanized per se. We import most of the things we use to farm. We import um, some set of fertilizers, we import seeds, and then we import the pesticides, insecticides that are used by farmers. Now with the lockdown, which came around the time of uh, the planting season was about to commence. It's now farmers to assess those things because the agribusiness people were unable to restock before the lockdown was put in place. So it's kind of a tricky situation where uh, the government is making effort, because, but because of our huge population, this uh, is going to have a bite later in the future, where, which is going to inevitably is going to lead to shortages, which is going to lead to a spike in prices of this food stuff in the future. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a difficult situation. And then when you mentioned the you know, access to improved seeds and fertilizers and things like this, this happened at a time when Nigeria was getting ready to roll out its um, GMO, its, its BT cowpea, which is of course such an important food crop um, in, West, in West Africa. So tell us a little bit about how has that rollout been affected by the pandemic? Are farmers still able to get that pest resistant seed or are they, um, is that on hold right now or what's going on? Uh rollout of the BT cowpea was affected because the plan of the federal government, oh, um, we were already in motion to um, release these seeds to the farmers. The intention of the government was to have farmers plant this improved cowpea in this 2020 planting season. But because of the lockdown, uh, um, farmers, um, they, they, they relevant organizations we are unable to get the certification of this um, crop so this means that even though farmers are eager to plant this um, 
this seed, they are unable to have it. They are unable to get it across to farmers. They are unable to get through the final process of certifying the seeds before it is released to the farmers. Because before now, um, they have already started teaching farmers the best farm practices that will help them in planting the seeds. Then seed companies have also been um, brought on board for the multiplication and distribution of these seeds. But, and then, so all, all these um, preparations was stalled when the lockdown was now announced by the federal government. So um, sadly, even though we want to plant the BT cowpea in this planting season, the COVID-19 lockdown has affected it. So it's, we have missed this planting season because it's raining already, farmers are already planting. So um, it's probably going to be another planting season from the way I see it. Mm -hmm. So there's another crop that's going to be another food crop that can potentially be having increased shortages because of the losses that the farmers suffer um, from the, the traditional cowpea. You know, we had a question here from Facebook, and so I'll, I'll let you answer first, Nikechi, since you're on. And so if this is Chris who's saying, um, please ask the panelists to respond to the police brutality occurring in their countries while enforcing the lockdowns. In April, the Nigeria Human Rights Commission reported that security forces were killing more people than coronavirus, with 18 killed by police and 12 killed by corona in that time. And then um, there was also a killing um, in Kenya. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, how, what are, what's the police response been in terms of uh, enforcing the lockdown and has there been resistance from the population to police brutality, the sort of you know, protests that we're seeing in the US and Western countries. So tell us a little bit about that, Nikechi. So uh, in Nigeria, um, the people who feel the bite of the lockdown are, um, are, are the people um, on the lower um, cadre of the public. So um, these people are the people who feel that uh, it's better to be out there to get things done, to, to, to source for livelihood, than stay home and die of hunger. So no matter how much they want to stay home, they have to go out there to get something to eat. Mm -hmm. So now this is a friction between the police who are the law enforcement people and the people who have to go out to eat. Or they are, it's, it's a tricky situation where uh, trying to balance between staying safe mm -hmm. and eating. So these things are, it's just a spill-off of the lockdown in trying to enforce, uh, you know, the government directive to stay home and stay safe, and then trying to make sure that people go out there and then eat, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so this led to, um, uh, you know, agitations by the people, which inevitably led the government to ease down a little bit on the low income earners, which um, he, 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 the directive now came that people can go out, mm -hmm. the, the market markets can open 
for a regulated time between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. so that it gives an avenue for people to go out and look forward to it and then come home, you know. So, yes, there are situations like that, but it's um, a tricky situation between following the governing directive and then surviving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a tough choice, very tough choice. Mamie, let's hear a little bit from Kenya in terms of, you know, many people in Africa and other parts of the world do depend on day labor just to get enough food each day to survive. They have to work each day to get food. They don't have money saved. They don't have a pantry full of food like they have in the U.S. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, how people are responding um, and how the police are responding to, you know, at that at that end of the economic scale where, where people are a little more desperate as Nikechi was pointing out? Well, uh, I think in Kenya also there are similarities with Nigeria. You know, majority of people, especially in informal settlements, for example, in slums like uh, Kibera, which is uh, one of the largest uh, slums in Africa, uh, people there really depend on a daily basis work to feed for their family. So um, uh, their families has been affected in terms of food access and uh, the lockdown. You know, initially the lockdown was for 10 hours. Uh, the, the, the curfew hour was for 10 hours. So, uh, you know, at 7 p.m. already uh, people are going at home and um, they, the police uh, uh, presence all over are trying to contain them, especially to be at their own homes or in their jobs. So because most of them walk to the cities and uh, walk back to their houses, uh, there was time difference. And uh, some of them, we saw a bit of uh, police brutality, you know, beating uh, citizens. Uh, because um, if they, they stay in their own house, uh, then they will not be able to feed their families. And some of them that you have been some of the people that you have interviewed said, they are battling between dying of hunger and, and dying of COVID-19. So uh, those issues were there. And police were saying that um, they use uh, force to contain the, the residents because they, they don't want to fill the prison uh, with the, these people and because this, they, they can escalate the, the COVID-19 spread. Right, exactly. I think we always see it's always the poorest people that, that suffer the most in these situations. You know, so, so Joseph, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, Ghana in regard to, are there conflicts with the police? Was there a repressive action in enforcing the lockdown? You know, how are people responding there? So um, in, in a place called Ashaiman in Ghana, um, a gentleman was shot by the military in the efforts to enforce the lockdown. He was actually killed um, because the claim was that he was skipping the lockdown and, you know, they had to go after him and resulted in him being killed. The community got angry, they uh, masked up, and that came with its own challenges because when the community, when the community masked up in response, then there was no social distancing. No one was protecting themselves, even as they demonstrated and protested that particular killing with the MP leading the processes and all. Um, not just that, just a few days ago, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Accra by one of the groups and um, the leadership of the group was actually arrested by police. And the gentleman has been put before court because then the point is that um, in, in leading the demonstration, um, they acted in a way that breached restrictions and breached protocols when it comes to um, social distancing to avoid COVID-19 and all. Because 
parliament has actually passed the new act here in Ghana called the Restriction of Imposition Act, uh, which the president has issued an executive instrument to back uh, on the restriction. So this gentleman and a few others were demonstrating, and in the course of the demonstration, you know, there was the arrest, the case is before court, they insist they had put in all the necessary protocols. Um, and, and not just that, even myself, personally, um, I got arrested by the police during the lockdown period, you know, because then um, there, were con there were issues about movement and all, which eventually got resolved a few hours later at the police station. So there's been bits and pieces of that in, in, in terms of brutalities and all, some of them have ended up in courts, people have been um, fined, which is the due process and all, and people have been put in prison, but there's been bits and pieces of um, the brutalities that have been meted out by the security agencies and all, even mm. till date with the conversation ongoing on Black Lives Matter and the police using COVID-19 related restrictions to insist that people shouldn't uh, converge and avoid uh, some of those situations with protests and all. Mm. Well, I'm sorry to hear you got arrested, Joseph, but I'm glad that you got out pretty quickly, too. <laughs> we don't it was fixed after three or four hours, you know. Um, it only required a level-headed conversation. So it goes back to the point about the police overreaching and overacting mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes not being reasonable enough. But eventually that was fixed um, mm -hmm. after about three hours. Okay. I think we, we've all become more aware of the instances of police overreacting and missing that reasonable conversation, which, which leads to another question we have from one of our audience, Ian Gazard, who's asking, and we'll start with you, Joseph, since you're on the screen, and that is, um, so with the lockdowns, we know that people have, you know, it's a, an effort by government to try to stop the spread of this virus, particularly in cities where people live close together, and, you know, that's had problems with re police repression as well as economic impacts. But, but tell us about some of the government initiative or one government initiative that, that has been effective in really addressing the pandemic in, in Ghana. Um, I saw that question from Ian on the platform, um, a very uh, in, you know, interesting question. Um, so uh, for example, the Minister for Food and Agriculture was in parliament about two weeks ago and there was a question to him about the need for government to roll out what um, some groups in Ghana have called for and what some MPs have called for, an emergency, uh, you know, a food security emergency preparedness plan in relation to COVID-19 and even going forward. And the minister outlined what he said is a policy that the government is implementing, which includes trying to boost local food production as a way to help ensure long-term uh, food sustainability, even when such pandemics hit, and uh, governments rolling out necessary measures to ensure that the inputs that go into production, like fertilizers, like pesticides, like improved seeds are locally done. Uh, the minister again indicated that that effort is ongoing and that uh, they are expanding on um, uh, 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 not just processing plants, but also warehouses where they can keep food in the long term for difficult moments and all. Um, he elaborately laid out what he described as that emergency food preparedness plan and indicated that he was going to submit it to parliament so that then MPs are aware of it. The only problem with the plan, as he outlined, is that only himself and his people are aware of it and 
Um, it, it's not out there for third parties to do the necessary interrogation. He promised Parliament he will let them have it the week after, which hasn't happened yet. So we are looking forward to it. So that looked like a reasonable way around it, building local capacity so that then when the borders have to be locked and people have to stay in their local vicinities to control a pandemic, then they can still have access to food and all. So um, localizing food production is what the minister has advocated for. We always see how that gets rolled out eventually so we don't have some of these challenges emerging going into the future. Good. Mamie, what about you? What's, what's one initiative that the Kenyan government has come up with that in a response to this that you think has been particularly effective or, or helpful? Well, uh, the Ministry of Health, what it has done really, it has empowered people in terms of uh, information, information flow. And um, they are sh sharing constant information in terms of how you are supposed to conduct yourself during this COVID-19. But then there is also the rise of citizen journalism, whereby people are reporting uh, cases. For example, people who are traveling from cities uh, to their village and then citizens would report that case to, to the chief, who is a government representative. Then the government representative effects, um, um, you know, various measures that has been implemented, but has been issued by the government. So we have seen the rise of citizen journalism, people becoming more uh, responsive uh, with information and also putting the government to the task. But then also uh, in terms of um, uh, food production as well, uh, the government has been proactive in terms of issuing uh, various guidelines on how uh, basically food can be distributed from one area to another. Uh, there was an issue of um, uh, exports, for example, you know, uh, government uh, has a, a lot of emphasis on exports, especially on flour, flour exports, mm -hmm. which is a very essential commodity. So the government, uh, uh, through various ministries, uh, distributed flowers to UK uh, um, residents for free, especially those ones who have been affected by the COVID-19, mm -hmm. uh, because they are essentially they are the markets, they are the mm -hmm. consumers of the flowers. So Kenyans, some of the Kenyans received the news with um, you know uh, were happy about it, others were very angry about it. Um, but then this incident uh, supported farmers in one way or the other because their flowers were bought by the government to be distributed to the various residents of UK. Mm hmm an interesting approach. Yeah, it's one way to deal with that problem. Um, so Nikechi, what about you? We actually, we had a question that was directed to you that said, um, this must be from a Nigerian who says, so far Nigerians believe COVID-19 is a scam by the government. So um, what's your take on that? And um, we, I think we heard a little bit of that previously, but maybe you could work into that. What's an initiative that the government of Nigeria has done that has been effective in addressing COVID? Uh, the, 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 the take that um, COVID-19 is not real, it's obviously a farce uh, because if, if you take it all, I think one of the first victims of the virus was uh, the chief of staff of our president, who is a, a very highly placed official who died of COVID-19 complications. Mm. Now, apart from that, we've had even state governors 
come out to say that they are positive to the virus and who have had to go to self-isolation. And um, there was a recent case of Emidia Mugu, the owner of African Independent Television, whose um, son traveled and came back and was positive to the virus. And when he was tested, the whole family was tested. The family of about seven were positive to the virus. So they had to take them to the isolation center for treatment. And then they recovered and they were released. Mm -hmm. Issues that um, coronavirus is, if is, is calm, is out of the question. Now, um, you know, even though um, people are coming up with the myth that Africa is too hot for the virus and, and things like that, it is still real because the number keeps increasing and the number of deaths keep growing. As of today, I think we have over 400 deaths mm -hmm. from the virus. So where are the deaths coming from if it's not real? Right. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just a ploy to maybe push their own personal agenda. This is a global situation that every nation is currently grappling with. So to take precautionary measures should be the watchword in this mm -hmm. situation. So Nikechi, why do you think that Africa has had a lower number of cases than places like the United States, Brazil, you know, China, Italy? You know, why do you think Africa has been able to keep its cases down? Okay, personally, I think um, in Africa, we are still dealing with the issues of malaria, mm -hmm. unlike the Western world, where they have done away with issues like this. So I believe our immune system is still very used to fighting off, um, you know, flu and, you know, fever and all this, mm -hmm. unlike the Western world where that's um, an age-long story. That's mm -hmm. one of the first things I think is helping Africa deal with this issue. The second issue is um, the experience they have gathered from the Ebola issue, the Ebola epidemic. You know, during the Ebola epidemic, Nigeria was one of the countries that was able to deal with the pandemic, epidemic successfully. You, you had uh, issues where they've had to bring in um, some of the um, things they used with Ebola, like contact tracing, you know, and then isolation, and then opening up of more areas to keep people in isolation. So I think these two points, number one for me is that we are, our immune system is still used to dealing with issues of flu and then our experience that we have gathered from the previous um, epidemic like these ones, they are still coming into play now. So it's helping the government to keep a firm grasp of, of the situation right now. Mm -hmm. It's a very good point about malaria. I just recently saw a little graphic that shows the top causes of death throughout the world. And for a very long time, it was malaria, but now COVID has topped that. So I think a lot of people, as you mentioned, in the West sort of forget about malaria, but it's a very real problem in Asia and Africa. 
So we're just about out of time, but I want to wrap up by asking each of you to, to summarize by, we've heard about the bad things that have happened in terms of police repression, lockdown, food shortages, um, uh, things like that, and of course, death and sickness, but what's some positive outcome that you think might come out of this? Something good that might come out for the continent or your country out of, because of this pandemic? We'll start with you, Nikechi, and then we'll move on. Okay, so um, for me, I think it's um, going to be the ability to open up to more technologies. You know, mm -hmm. during the um, lockdown, during the COVID-19 lockdown, we've had to uh, be forced to try to function as a society uh, in isolation, you know? Now we have meetings, virtual meetings. We still try to run governments. We still try to go out there and do things we should have done from isolation. This means that even at the end of the COVID-19, uh, we are going to go into an era where uh, the society uh, can depend more on technology to function. Now, uh, prior to now, everybody needed to be in the same venue to have a meeting. But mm -hmm. with the advent of the coronavirus, people now can effectively meet, have virtual meetings. And then it's also going to help us be more independent when it comes to you know, trying to get our food, 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 food supply chain uh, working. Because now, with the lockdown, people still have to eat and farmers still have to plant. Now, this has forced our local um, seed companies to try to, you know, fill in the gaps in terms of making sure there are enough seeds for farmers to plant. I think mm -hmm. these are some of the things my take away from the pandemic. Yeah, that's, that's, I think there often is some positive out of it. What about you, Mamie? What do you think is something positive that might result from this whole situation there in Kenya? Well, Kenya is almost similar to Nigeria, as Nkaji says. Uh, one of the issues that we see is a rise of innovations. For example, I reported on uh, Kitui County, which is producing PPEs and uh, the, the local mask. So the importation of mask has, has been, um, you know, uh, we are importing less mask uh, because uh, local companies are manufacturing. So the manufacturing, which is under the uh, big four agenda of the president, is being sustained. And, um, you know, uh, farmers and also various agricultural uh, producers are using innovative ways, for example, so social media to sell their produce. So we have seen people who did not necessarily uh, were not involved in agricultural value chain uh, getting involved. Um, even in some areas, we have seen the rise of uh, car boot, uh, people selling produce from their own cars, uh, you know, mm -hmm. cutting the, 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 the various um, uh, elements of challenges of accessing markets. Mm -hmm. Being innovative and getting it right to the customer and cutting out the middleman. And what about you, Joseph? What do you see as something positive that might come out of this in, in Ghana? I'll tie that in directly with the question you asked in Kechi about how come COVID-19 cases in Africa are low. Um, to give your government the credits, they've been very proactive. A lot of nations locked down even before they recorded their very first cases of COVID-19 in terms of 
the borders, the borders, you mm -hmm. know, so, so they close down airports, you know, as, as a proactive measure. Despite all its negative sides, um, a lot of um, Ghana, for example, went into lockdown when there were, if my memory serves me, just about 400 cases of COVID-19, you know, um, and South Africa has some of the strongest COVID-19 restrictions, although their cases are nowhere near what Italy and Germany and the U.S. has. Mm -hmm. So I think that aside everything else that has been said, um, the cases are low because we've been proactive and scared mm -hmm. and we've rolled out the measures to get ahead of it. So um, it, it starts as the lesson that if we take things seriously and we are proactive, and we respond when we need to, we can deal with situations going forward. And I think that's a key lesson that Africa would learn and it will inform decisions going forward. The other key thing which I think will be a positive out of COVID-19 has been beyond the technologies as um, Vernado mentioned earlier. For example, when it comes to using local treatment to deal with the everyday challenges that we face and investing in them, I think for us in Africa, it's so much of an eye-opener. There's a lot of controversy around the medication that's emerging from Madagascar and the fact that it's not gone through the necessary processes and all, which everyone is saying, let those processes be rolled out. Even here in Ghana, um, following the outbreak, the herbal medicine practitioners submitted about 32 different herbal medication to the Food and Drugs Authority for assessment as to whether they can help deal with COVID-19. 19 of them got the positive response that they can. And now the conversation is that the processes have begun to get it through the necessary trials and even clinical trials and get international approval for it. So it's opening our eyes to the fact that we can come up with local remedies to deal with some of these challenges and open it up to international standards and critiques in terms of how they get adopted eventually. I think that's the other positive thing that would end up emerging. And it goes back to adequate investment in science and technology and taking indigenous African technology a lot more seriously in terms of how these challenges can be dealt with. So that tomorrow, you may never know it may be possible that a COVID-19 medication emerging from African indigenous technology can be accepted by the CDC in the United States of America as possible treatment for COVID-19. That's a very good point, uh, Joseph. And it also leads to um, a little plug for our next program, which is going to be a conversation about Brazil, which has not been proactive and has not taken a pro-science approach and now has the number two um, right behind the U.S. in the most COVID cases in the world. So we'll see, we'll hear from uh, Natalia Techner there about why hasn't Brazil been very proactive. But I just, um, and people can find the rest of our lineup by visiting allianceforscience.cornell.edu. And I just want to thank all of you uh, participants and our wonderful correspondents for joining us and sharing what's happening. It's been so interesting to hear from all of you and keep doing your great reporting and be sure to stay safe. And thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, John. Okay. Thank you, John. Bye -bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. See you all again soon, I hope. Bye-bye. <laughs>